huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. Welcome to Disruptors. I'm Rob Moore. In this interview, we have the most famous hypnotist in the UK, maybe the world, Paul McKenna. We spoke about the line between influence and manipulation. We talked about freedom of speech, who controls the world, the success mindset. Can Paul McKenna make you rich? Paul even said at the start, there is no question off the table. Paul, can you make me rich? Um, Yeah, I suppose so. Um, uh, I wrote a book about it. (laughs) Did you? (laughs) Yes, I did. Um, uh, I am fascinated by human behaviour psychology. And uh, as a practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming, I like to model people. So that means I I map what's going on in their mind and their physiology. So um, it's for two reasons. So if somebody's dysfunctional, you know, and they scare themselves at the sound of a dog barking or the thought of going to the dentist, you find out how they frighten themselves and you go in and you spoil it. But equally, you can use modeling to to unpack and codify what somebody does if they're a model of excellence. So if they're a great salesperson or therapist or something like that. And you can then learn to a similar degree in a fraction of the time it took them how to do it in an excellent way. So I wanted to study people who are rich. And I modeled people like Richard Branson, Anita Roddick. Um, Very interesting. At the beginning, David Barclay. So David Barclay, Barclay Brothers, he said, you know, you're going to meet um, people have got a lot of money, they're wealthy, but they're not really rich. They're just running from poverty all the time. And I, I thought, yeah, that's kind of interesting. So I, I based it around people that were not just, you know, miserable millionaires. They were, they were rich in every sense. So, of course, they're financially rich, they're wealthy, but they, um, they have a, a wonderful life with balance in it. So they, you know, they, they are happy is what was really the other criteria. And um, when I finished the book, um, I tested the system on 12 people. All of them made tons more money. But um, they also had a happier life. They had a more abundant life. So uh, I can make people rich. That is true. I mean, essentially, you've got to join me and do some of the stuff with me. You know, it's not like I just wave a magic wand and you're rich. (laughs) But I get you to think in the way that rich people do in in a different mindset. Mm. And... um, and also, I you know show you the strategies of some of the super achievers, so you can use those yourself. Mm. So, what are some of the mindsets of the rich, and the strategies and tactics of the rich that you learned? Okay, so um, partly it's what they don't do. So, rich people um, don't hate rich people, and they don't hate money, right? Um, or think money is evil the way poor people do, right? Because you know if you hate rich people, how can you be one of them, right? So uh, you have to, first of all, get rid of all the blocks, you know, around money. You know, money causes arguments. Money is the root of all evil, that sort of stuff. And 
Uh, and then you need to, uh, you, yeah, you need to begin to change your perspective. And I do certain exercises. I go, so imagine you got twice as much for doing exactly what you do right now. Could you feel comfortable with that? And they go, yeah. And they go, twice as much again, twice as much again. And eventually you hit a ceiling. They go, oh, it's too much, right? So you want them to break through that threshold. And then um, I do things like simple stuff. I get people to think about something they do really well. It might be playing tennis or ironing or something. And then think about themselves making money. And they usually go, well, you know, I'm not sure if I can. And then what you do is um, it's an NLP process where you swap the pictures, bam, in their head. And suddenly they go, oh, I feel like I could do this, right? Because you've changed their self-image. I also get people to go back and have a wealthy childhood because we're shaped by the experiences, particularly the moments of emotional intensity in the first seven years of our life. So I get people to, excuse me, grow up uh, with encouragement, with beliefs that they, they can be richer than they are and their life can be even more wonderful. I also do things like um, I have... Um, something called the simplest business plan in the world. So it doesn't matter if you work for somebody or if you have your own business. Essentially, you get rewarded for adding value or perceived value. It's really perceived value because supermodels are paid more than doctors. So the perception is they're more valuable. But if you look at any super successful person, they will have created value or the perception of it in the world. So you find out how you can do that and then you interrogate it with a set of questions. And um, I do other stuff too, um, mostly to shift people out of um, a poverty mindset, one of running from poverty and, and th- you know, because you, you need a, a system within you to tell yourself, well, oh, I don't have enough of this, or that could be a risk, or if I, if I do it like that, it could be, be a problem. And into one where you begin to think creatively, abundantly. And um, that's, again, that's done in different ways. I mean, you know, a lot of people are already living rich in many of their areas. I mean, if I, I say to people, if you, if you had um, all the money in the world, would you change um, where you live? Now, a lot of people go, well, I might have a bigger house. Would you change your car? Nearly everyone says yes to that. I go, would you change your friends? No. Would you change what you eat? Uh, maybe I would eat out a bit more, but not really. Uh, would you change what you do for a living? No, I probably wouldn't. Um, and so anything you answered no to is where you're already living rich. Mm. I mean, a billionaire can afford a, a better bed than you or I, um, Rob, but they can't buy a good night's sleep. So when you're sleeping deep, you're sleeping rich in a sense. Mm. And so um, rich for me is, sure, it's about having money, but it's also um, having this mindset where all you're noticing all day long are things that affirm that um, life is wonderful and you're rich. Do you think there's a bit of mass hypnosis in the world, maybe through the media, about hating billionaires and it being wrong to be rich in the form of money. Yes, we see terms used in our media, fat capped, filthy rich, and this- They play the billionaires in the, the evil billionaires in all the Marvel movies, don't they? Yes, exactly, <laughs> that's right. So there's this sort of implicit belief that, you know, um, if somebody achieves great wealth, they've got to have been a bit of a git to have done it, you know, or they've got to be up to something naughty. They, they can't be legit. And um, that, by the way, is poor thinking, right? Also, there's an envy culture too, you know. You see somebody who's getting, you know, paid, a lot of money to make a movie or, you know, a big sponsorship deal. And people are very quick to go, ah, look at him. So, you know, that, again, keeps people stuck in a poverty mindset. Because, and again, I find talking to people like this, they've got the idea that there's a finite amount of money, that somehow somebody else having a lot of money means 
You don't. No, no, it doesn't work like that. You know, money's the oil in the machine that keeps the whole thing, um, you know, the, the world going round, as it were, not the earth, the world. Mm. And so by, again, this is a form of hating rich people, isn't it? The envy thing. Uh, no, the more, the more people that are rich in the world, the better it is for everyone. Mm. I mean, Buckminster Fuller said, um, we have got the resources to all of us to live like multimillionaires, but we don't have a, a fair distribution of them, essentially. And it would be nice to see a fairer distribution. Uh, but, you know, I'm a... Uh, I'm a free market capitalist, mm. and you know, I mean, uh, I I believe in you know the the market is a really good way of determining the things. Um, you know, I'm certainly not a socialist or a communist or anything like that. Yeah, I think people forget about distribution of wealth. Is that that's what the tax system is partly for, isn't it? That is a. Well, the greatest redistribution of wealth, or shouldn't it be? Well, high taxes. Basically, taxes are the government saying we can spend your money better than you. So. Um, uh, I, I'm, I, of course, am for paying taxes, um, but um, whenever people who are super rich get taxed um, uh, highly, they just leave and go somewhere else, right? So um, I believe in fairness. The strong should support the weak mm-hmm. because that's, that makes for a decent society. But if you stifle um, um, businesses and growth, then that doesn't help anybody, right? So, so high taxes, you know, um, uh, traditionally come from... Uh, socialist governments that want to, they want to distribute it. You know, the, the intention's good, but <clears throat> essentially all they do is make the, the government bigger and the businesses um, uh, suffer as a result. You know, I'm not for big government, you see. No. Well, I've talked about that on a lot of podcasts, so we'll move on from that one. Okay. Um, the self-help industry. Mm. I've always found it fascinating how some people love it and swear by it and it's changed their lives. And some people almost think it's a scam and they look down on it. Why do you think that is? Or do you agree with that? Well, I think it's fair to say that in all businesses, there's good and bad people. So, uh, you, yeah, clearly in the self-help industry, there are some people who are really good people that, that they bring something amazingly good to the world, right? And, and of course, there's going to be some bad people, some scam artists, but that's true in any area of life. But I think there's also a proportion of people who just think, oh, this is all too good to be true. And they literally want it not to be true because it makes them feel powerless, right? Because they then got to take responsibility and do something to upgrade their life. Mm. So when you say, hey, you know, um, actually your life can be better, they go, oh yeah, oh really, you know, oh go on. And and I understand it, you know, because um, I I think it's okay to be skeptical. I'm a skeptical person. Um, And I think it's, it's good to question things, you know, rather than just blindly believe them. But also, I think to some extent, you've got to be a bit open-minded. Mm. I mean, you know, when I first got interested in hypnosis and NLP, I was pretty sceptical about it. But the results spoke for themselves. Mm. So that's kind of why I'm, you know, I'm like, it's worked for me. You know, my life's been massively enriched um, uh, for, from my interest in self-improvement. And um, I, I think that, you know, I, I, yeah, I think for me, it's more of a vocation than just a job. Mm. Yeah, I've always found it weird why people would think that self-help is a joke. Why would one not want to help oneself? Why would one not want to improve one's life? Yeah, I know. I mean, I think we should teach um, at school confidence and stress control. And, um, you know, I mean, a lot of stuff, you know, math and English clearly, you know, important. But a lot of things we learn at school are not really going to be of any great use to us in, in life. And um, in fact, some of the things we learn at school are very counterproductive. So one of the reasons the um, fear of public speaking is the largest phobia now in the Western world is at school, you get to stand up, read out loud, 
someone points out your mistakes and people giggle. So it's installed at an early age. Mm. I mean, I think our whole education system, you know, could really do um, with a revamp and a, and a big emphasis on, say, accelerated learning. You know, I, I, my dear friend who's sadly now passed to Ken Robinson was a big advocate. He did that big TED talk, didn't he? Yeah, it was the most popular TED talk, I believe, of all time. And he was a wonderful, really clever, compassionate man. Um, and yeah, he, he advocated all sorts of changes. Tony Bazan, again, Tony was a brilliant guy. Yeah, he's been on the show, unfortunately. He passed away. He passed away, yeah. didn't he, recently? Yeah. So but t- Tony found a way to teach people how to learn faster and more efficiently with his mm. wonderful mind mapping system. These things should be all, they should be taught in school. You Why know? don't they break through into schools? Then? Well, I think they're beginning to. Um, I think what's happening is um, uh, that more and more people are aware of them, but it's kind of teachers that, you know, a little bit, um, uh, let's say, that, that are mavericks, right? We go, you know, I'm going to teach my class, um, uh, I'm going to teach them mind mapping, or I'm going to teach them, you know, uh, these strategies to help them to become more confident or more creative or learn better. And so you've got a lot of teachers now that are beginning to embrace this and, and take it in there. The same in all sorts of professions, you know, same with doctors. Um, I mean, I, I teach more doctors now than I ever did before because uh, they've realized that just knowing about bones and physiology and, and, and brain chemistry and things like that. It's great, but why not learn some psychology to go with it? Mm, yeah, interesting. Can I change my life in seven days? You can. You could change your life in seven seconds. I mean, you know, people go, oh, it takes 21 days to change your habit. I go, no, I've seen it happen in 20 seconds. You know, you meet a particular person and in that moment your life changes or you have an idea for a business or you just decide, right, I'm not going to do that anymore. And you, you suddenly take charge of your life. So literally... In, in moments, your life can change. Uh, I, I wrote a book, my big breakthrough book about 20 years ago was called Change Your Life in, in Seven Days. And um, I took all of the things that I knew at the time in terms of self-improvement, because I'd, I'd been reading self-help books for, for years. And, and then it got to a point where I thought, well, a lot of people are just rehashing other people's stuff. And I, I could do better than this, because I'm really a talker, not primarily a writer. And I wrote this book. I didn't know how well it would do. It just absolutely smashed all over the world. And then my publisher went, you'll be doing a few more of these. I went, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> and so I never intended to be a writer. But um, uh, I, 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 I think also it wasn't just what I was writing. It was the way. It was trying to make it very common sense without all the psychobabble that a lot of other books had and still do. So um, you can change your life in seven days. If you do anything for seven days, you're likely to be different. But if you practice the techniques and you listen to the hypnotic trance that comes with the book, so basically you're, you're spending half an hour a day with a hypnotist, you're going to be different. And, um, you know, that's, that's been, a, it's been a good brand for me because, you know, people go, yeah, seven days, it's a, it's a commitment, isn't it? Yeah, but I could do that, you know, and, and indeed many people have. I remember my first personal development teacher, and this really broke my mindset in a good way, because I think like you, I was pretty sceptical, but I wasn't sceptical because I was figuring out what worked and didn't work. I was sceptical because I was scared of looking stupid, being humiliated, you know, maybe um, fear of success, certainly jealous of others. Mm. Um, But someone said to me once, Change happens in an instant and a decision happens in an instant. It's the preparation for change that takes years. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, 
Uh, Roger Moore said to me once, uh, um, uh, an overnight success usually takes about 10 years. Right? <laughs> now, the, I think it's true, but the thing is that usually somebody who picks up a book like Change Your Life in Seven Days or comes to one of my events, they're ready, right? They, they might not believe it's going to happen for them. You know, we found this with people who use my weight loss system. They went, I don't think it will work, but I'll give it a go. That's all I need is you to, is you to just get, invite me to help you. And then boom, your chances of success are pretty good. So uh, yeah, usually the, the point that's led to that is the frustration of things being not the way someone wanted them to be. And they go, right, I'm going to try something else, you know? And um, I think that's true for me in life. I've got to a point where I've either gone, you know, I really don't like this. I'm unhappy with this. What am I going to do about it? Right. Yeah. Or um, this is a problem. It's a problem. I, I got to solve this, you know? And so if it wasn't, if it wasn't a problem, I wouldn't be that fussed about changing it. So yes, there usually is some lead up before boom, it happens. Mm. I understand from my research that you're quite passionate about helping people with severe trauma, PTSD, etc. Yeah. Um, can we talk about how you do that? Because mm, sure. I think there's quite a lot of that going around. Well, there is. Um, I, so I've been working at the sharp end for about a decade now with war veterans, rape victims, bereavement cases. And um, it came about because um, I got interested in psychosensory therapies, the, you know, the tapping technique, TFT. The creator was a friend of mine. He's a wonderful man, Roger Callahan. Um, and I introduced a friend of mine to this technique, a guy called Dr. Ronald Rudin. He's, a, he's an MD, but he's a Harvard PhD in neuropharmacology. This guy's smart. And uh, he was fascinated to, uh, to understand why the touch of certain parts of the body. So remember, he's a hard scientist, right? So, you know, um, Callahan was a psychologist, right? So different ways of thinking about the world. And Ron Rudin wanted to find out if there were specific parts of the body that create the touch of which created change. And it so happens that here, 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 and here produces a massive amount of delta waves. So when you get traumatized, say you go through trauma, a hundred hertz wave travels from the thalamus and it phosphorates the amperoceptors in the brain. So it creates a biological change. Now, when you summon the traumatic memory and you do this, you, the touch of here, if you just do this, Rob, this, you see this, this feels comforting, doesn't it? Yeah. Right, because when you were a baby, your mother held you in her arms and she, and she rocked you. You are hardwired to feel good and to produce massive delta, right? So you do that. What's um, delta? De delta wave. Well, delta waves are synonymous with the deepest relaxation. Alpha is usually creative. Beta is what we're in right now because we're having a conversation. And a theta delta, delta is the one you want for, to dephosphorate the amperoceptors. So this looks deceptively simple, but it works brilliantly. And the scientific research uh, that's been done on it shows it's absolutely spectacular in reducing stress, uh, eliminating trauma, even helping with things like depression or um, anxiety, pain as well. And this technique is called havening, as in a safe haven. So what happened was um, I got involved in a study for the military. It was a classified study. It's declassified now, so I can tell you about it. But um, it, um, and it worked incredibly well. And, um, and so I became quite fascinated with this. You know, a lot of what I do is not commercially oriented. It's just because life's been good to me. I want to give something back. And the gift of helping people is it's amazing. It's really awesome when you can, somebody's been stuck in trauma for years, nothing's worked and suddenly you set them free. So 
I got involved in that, and it's something I'm still involved with. You know, I, I work with the, the VA, the Veterans Aid, and, um, and the, the wonderful people there and the, the great work that they do, which is just awesome. Helping people, um, you know, who've been physically scarred in battle, say, but also emotionally scarred as well. And as you rightly say, Rob, right now, anxiety, stress, etc., is off the scale because we've had a biological pandemic we're also in a psychological one as well. And we're seeing, you know, all sorts of issues to do with mental health uh, become very challenging at the moment. So um, the more people there are out there, you know, being able to make people feel better, the better it is for everybody. And have you got any practical tips on overcoming anxiety? Yeah, I mean, I tell you, there's one really great technique that I can show you right now. It's very quick. And this is um, used by all four divisions of the American military, and it's called heart math. So if you're feeling anxious and overwhelmed, you put your hand on your heart because that draws your attention to the heart, which is the second brain. All right, so this immediately alters how you're feeling. Now, also, when people are super stressed, they don't breathe properly. They're, they're uptight. And so what you do is you force a slow in and out breath. So you go, and then you go, and you do three of these. And on the third breath, if you can, you close your eyes and you remember a time you felt good and you return to it like you're back there again. Now, you see what you saw, you hear what you heard, and you feel those good feelings all over again. And that interrupts the overwhelm and uh, takes usually less than, than a minute. But that's a very simple technique that you know I can show you as, as I just did in a couple of minutes there. Um, there are lots of others. I'm a big fan of TFT, of the havening technique, and things like hypnosis and NLP are, all work really well to help people with anxiety, stress, trauma, um, you know, those, those sorts of things that are becoming more and more um, common these days. As well as an emotional side to anxiety, is there a logical side too where anxiety is a perception of what could go wrong rather than a perception of what could go right? That's a great question. Yes, you're absolutely right. Basically, we all have a mechanism within us that protects us, right? And um, its job is to say, fear. the job of fear or stress is to say, be prepared. So if I'm about to step off the curb out there and a bus is coming, <gasps> I want fear to pull me back, keep me alive. If I'm about to do a business deal and, and I haven't thought it all through, I need fear to go, hey, pay attention to this and this, or maybe it isn't right. So the job of fear is to protect you. The problem is, is if your bandwidth is constantly taken up with that, there isn't any room for joy, confidence, optimism, creativity. So what's happened is because the messaging from our media has become so dramatic now, everything's the end of the world, you know, you open a newspaper or turn on the TV, you're under attack. It's the virus, it's the economy, it's the terrorists, it's China, it's Russia, it's right, right? And and to an extent, that is true, right? We do need to be aware of these things. But um, people, I've noticed over the last couple of years, have got very good at catastrophizing. So they can literally, you know, they can make two plus two equal 32. They can go, hang on, what if, what if my family gets sick? And what if the economy crashes? What if I lose my job? And they do this really, really good. So they've practiced it. And so they can literally, in a moment, make everything seem like the end of the world. And uh, I'm all in favor of having a part, a part of you that, heads off problems before they happen. But, you know, it's that old saying by Mark Twain, 
I've been through some terrible experiences in my life. And some of them actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> Who would you say is the most famous person you've worked with and improved their life? God, I mean, it depends. Or pick, up a, pick out a couple. Um, well, do you know, I, don't, I tend not to speak about... I mean, if, if other people say I've helped them, and there are lots of people from the arts, you know, rock stars, movie stars sports world, business, who've um, wanted to tell the world that I've helped them because, um, you know, they, I suppose it was a really nice thing. They wanted to to be um, um, endorsing of my work. Yeah, there are people, there, there are loads of you, you can see um, online, loads of people have said these nice things. I mean, I tend not to speak about it unless they have, but yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all kinds of different people. I mean, it's not only famous people I work with. I mean, I can you know, I can tell you when a super famous person rings up and says, "Could you help me?" I go, "Yes." And then, you know, I mean, I remember Roger Daltrey tells everybody from the Who, you know. I mean, and after we'd done the work, uh, I said, "Right, can I just ask you some questions as a fan?" You know, <laughs> and uh, he went, "Yeah, anything you want, right?" You know, but actually, one time, but the only time I really messed it up because, I mean, you know, it would the president could sit in front of me. I, I bought a queen. I'm a laser beam when I'm working now, you know. But about 30 years ago, um, David Bowie asked me to go around and help him with something. And I just, instead of being able to help him, I was starstruck. And I was in my head, I'm going, David Bowie! <laughs> and so I sort of messed it up a bit because I was just like an idiot fan. Um, and so I suppose there you go. There's a couple of famous people um, who've said nice things. Um, uh, and... You know, it is what it is. I mean, you know, you 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 show up and and you you know you do your best in in, in my case, and I I'm able to help people most of the time with most things that I set out to. But you know, as Roger Callahan once said to me, anyone who says they got a hundred percent success rate doesn't have enough patience. <laughs> what would you say is the best turnaround case you can remember ever doing where someone was in? real trouble and even maybe it surprised you how quickly you turned them around. Right. There's a really spectacular case, a guy called Ray Mash. He's um, work, working on a construction site. He gets hit on the head and he has, um, he goes blind, right? And it's, it's a very, very rare disorder, hysterical blindness. Adolf Hitler had it. Six months, couldn't see anything. Anyway, Ray had been like this for years. And I, I mean, he, when he approached me and said, look, he, he wrote to me and I said, I've always wanted to do one of these. Wow. So the thing is, because he'd been wearing dark glasses for years and, you know, had a, had a white stick, <clears throat> his eye sensitivity was, you know, was like a blind person's would be. Um, uh, and so he, we had, it took a while, it took months, actually. It took, I think it was nearly a year, actually. And what I did was I got his, you know, I, I talked to his unconscious mind, asked it to rebuild the neural networks in his brain and all. I mean, it's complicated, this. And then he starts to be able to see a bit more light and shape. You go like, hang on, there's a window, isn't there? Yeah. And then there was this, this extraordinary breakthrough moment because we were doing it in a dark room, right? And, and one, where one day where and we held the torch by his wife's face and suddenly went, I can see my wife. And it was really quite overwhelming. I mean, you know, and I talked to him recently and he, he can, no, so he can't see like he used to, but he can see, right? 
He can see his wife's face. He, you know, he can see his grandkids. He can. He drove a car the other day, not on the street, by the way, but you know, <laughs> in a private land. But yeah, so he's he, he's regained to some extent his vision back. And so um, there was another. Um, um, uh, a psychiatrist did some more work uh, studying him, and he thinks there was neurological damage. So I mean, because I'm not entirely sure what took place. I mean, I, I know what I did, but I don't know quite what took place. What I do know that even if it was neurological damage, the brain is is what we call plastic. So you can damage one bit and another bit will learn how to do... I mean, with a kid, you can knock out an entire hemisphere and the other hemisphere will learn all of it. Yeah. Wow. Uh, as you get older, it's less plastic. But I think possibly something like that took place. Or if it was just hysterical blindness and he got used to being blind and labeled blind and we moved him out of that, Maybe that was it too. All I know is the man couldn't see. He hadn't seen for years. And after I worked with him, uh, he could. Wow. You've done hypnosis for entertainment, I think, in your early career. Yep. And, of course, you do it for help and change. Do you have a – which one do you prefer? Well, I, do you know, it was, it, it's a good question again. It's, um, at, this, at a particular stage in my life, I wanted to be a stage performer, do comedy hypnosis, use hypnosis to make fun. Uh, albeit in a, I thought, in a, you know, a, not in an un, unkind way, you know, just um, <clears throat> like you do in any sort of, you know, comedy show. And uh, and I loved doing it. I used to love, you know, walking out in an auditorium, making people laugh. You know, um, I have, a, you know, I suppose uh, I do have a bit of a wicked sense of humour at times. So I did that. I toured the world with it. And when it got to a point where I wasn't enjoying it or didn't want to do that anymore, um, I decided because by that stage I'd been working as a as a therapist. I'd begun, you know, teaching hypnosis and then NLP, and um, and so I decided to swap careers. And why and, weren't you enjoying it? Well, oh, I think I'd just done. I'd, I mean, you know, I, I'd done I'd done it for ten years, right. and so uh, that that's why. Um, however, the other day, a friend of mine. Um, my friend Richard Bacon, he said he was doing a TV pilot and he wanted a stage demonstration, a comedy demonstration in the show. And he called me up and he said, would you mind doing it? I, I said, why don't you do it? He goes, I'll, I'll do it for you, Richard, of course. And we did it and we were falling about laughing. <laughs> and he goes, you know, you should really consider doing this on television again. And so um, he's planted a seed. So who knows, maybe I'll find some way of, of incorporating it into um you know, for example, there's a routine I do where I say, when you wake up, the number seven's missing from your memory. And you get someone to count their fingers and they're counting 11 fingers, right? And you go five on one, five on the other, that's 10, but they count as 11, you know, it's, it's funny. But the point is, if you can forget the number seven, you can forget to um, criticize yourself. You can forget to, um, to do, you know, dysfunctional behaviors. Yeah, so in a sense, the comedy is a route to showing people the power of the human mind, the power of hypnosis and the good things that you can achieve with it. Social media, mm. is that the ultimate form of mass hypnosis? Well, you know, hypnosis gets lumped in with brainwashing and, you know, and a whole host of other things. Now, as far as I'm concerned, um, hypnosis is a tool and it's used by stage entertainers and therapists. <clears throat> and, you know, this sort of mass brainwashing conditioning um, is you're absolutely right. That is, that's in, you, we see it in social media, 
we see it used by the governments. You know, I mean, it was, it was excessively used during the pandemic, actually sloppily used, I thought, at times, unnecessarily frightened people, you know, all to get them to do as they're told, right? And um, as a result, you know, people are not very happy about that. And so I don't think you can escape uh, inf- influence in your life. If I say, could you pass that glass? And you do. I've made a suggestion and you've modified your behavior in accordance. So, you know, if you want to look at people who are professional communicators and some of them misuse it, you'd have to look to politicians, cult leaders, salespeople, etc., etc. But yes, you're absolutely right. Social media um, conditions us in the way that it brings us information, the way that, you know, it... it um, all sorts of aspects, you know, even the, the layout of, of um, sales you know, sites that are selling to you, you know, is, is um, arrived at not by accident, but by um, very careful study. And is that a bad thing? I don't think so. I think, you know, selling to people, selling to people things they want or need is a good thing. You know, it's just if you're convincing people to do things that are not in their best interest, well, you don't have to be a hypnotist to do that. You know, you could be a cult leader, a politician, or a salesperson. Mm. And where would you say that line is? Have you got in your mind where that line is, where it goes, influence into manipulation? Yeah. So, for example, um, I find out what people want. And if I've got what they want, then I sell it to them, right? If I haven't, I try and direct them to where they might uh, be able to find it. Now, sometimes I'm not sitting one-to-one, so I'll study what people want in terms of a method to overcome insomnia or to be confident or to lose weight. And then I go, right, you know, if you want this, and I believe I have, um, excuse me, a solution, then, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my uh, communication skills to uh, put the best case, right? And so manipulation is where you lie, you coerce, you emotionally blackmail, those sorts of things. And uh, all of those, uh, first of all, if you have to do that to get by in the world, you you got, kind of got to be um, uh, some sort of um, um, uh, mentally unstable, unwell person. You'd probably be some sort of sociopath. And also you'd probably hate yourself because you don't have any confidence in your actual natural ability to convince others or think about the well-being of other people. So people that are purely consumed with their own satisfaction, they're utterly selfish, they're sociopaths, right? Someone who gets off on hurting other people that's a psychopath, right? And both of them are bad. Now, everyone's a little bit sociopathic, you know. You think, oh, God, maybe I can just cut in here in traffic or, you know, or, you know, I'm going to do something that's in my best interest, not everyone else. But when you actively live your life like that, you're a danger to society and should um, be, therefore, you know, dealt with in the way, the way that we do with people who are... Who are um, uh, are a danger to society. Yeah. So, so the, for me, the line is, you know, you, you basically this is the other thing, Rob. Everyone knows the difference between right and wrong. A sociopath or a psychopath doesn't care. They know that what they're doing is wrong, but they don't give a shit. Right. And that's the difference in those different in those types of people. Mm. So, Did you have a light go there? Was that? Yeah. 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 Sorry. Was that you? <laughs> <laughs> no. By the way, your energy is unbelievable. I've interviewed hundreds of people and keeping energy up. Yeah. I have to do that a lot. Sure. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, I mean, I'm enjoying this because, you know, I usually get asked a lot of the same sort of stuff, you know, uh, in interviews. Whereas this, you know, you, 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 you're covering a very broad um, spectrum with this, which is great. Because, um, you know, I quite like talking about this. Sort of mm. 
I've got a bit of a selfish question now, if you sure. don't mind. Yep. And it's linked to what you said. So you said about people hating themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be honest, at times I don't really like myself. Mm-hmm. That might be I'm unfairly comparing myself to other people. Yeah. I, I mean, I occasionally compare my podcast to Joe Rogan's. I mean, that's a silly thing to do because he's been doing it a lot longer than me and he's, he's in a different world. What I don't go is go, hmm, Joe Rogan, has he got 1,550 tenants in hundreds of properties that he owns? He probably hasn't, which I have. But instead of balancing this, I tend to look at Joe Rogan and think, you are the co- podcast Don and I'm just little old me and I feel a bit about that. Or I feel like I could be doing more, mm. even though I think I've done quite a lot. And mm. so I can go inward and beat myself up and mm. at times not really like myself. Mm. How can I do that less? Or should I be doing it more? Well, well no, no. I, Is it an entrepreneurial trait? Yeah, it comes back to what Sir David Barclay said. You know, if you're, you know, if you're running from the fear of poverty, you don't stop to enjoy all that you've created. Now, what you just described, there is a functional element in it, whereas you're, you're looking at somebody and you're going, I want to aspire to be as good as that. And I think that's a great thing. You know, it's fantastic to have role models. Yeah. I but, mean, maybe I'm as good as that. Maybe I'm just not as big as that. Sure. Mm. I mean, you know, some people are, um, are, will, will be uh, richer or more, you know, successful in terms of numbers. But it depends how you quantify success. You know, I once said to Richard Bandler, uh, I said, you know, no matter how good I get, I don't think I'll ever be as good as you. And this is, this is why he's very clever, Richard. He went, but you don't want to be me. I went, that's right, I don't want to be you. He goes, you want to be the best version of you, don't you? I went, yeah, I want to be the best version of me. So I think the same way, you know, I mean, in some respects, if I were to compare myself to, say, I don't know, Tony Robbins. Tony is a fantastic, he's the best motivator in the world. He's brilliant. I love Tony Robbins. He's, um, but he does a different thing to me, right? Um, uh, both Tony and me were Richard's, I suppose, star pupils. And Tony went into motivation and sales, and he rules the world. I went into therapy, and you know, and you know, there's a bit of crossover. We both trainers and that, but um, you know, I think in some ways, it's really healthy to have a role model, and to you know, to, to think to yourself, God, I want to be as good as them. Mm. But the thing that I'm, I'm always mindful is of is that. Everyone's unique. Nobody can do things exactly the way that you do them, right? So you have something to bring to the world that's, that's yours and will, will only ever be yours. And so um, if you get consumed with that thinking, and we all have at times, you go, God, I can't, this is the other one as well. If somebody like succeeds really well and you go, and they make it look really easy. Is that's kind of infuriating. They usually do, don't yeah. they? And you're yeah. like, but, or they're not as good as you, right? Yeah. And you go, but they, they've got better numbers. It's mm. easy to go, where is that fair, is it? Actually, you know, they've done it. People like yeah. what they do, fantastic. And you have kind of have to bless them, I think. Mm. So that helps to dispel it. So the mechanism by which you're, you know, because you'll go, what you're doing is sort of a, it's not an uncommon beat yourself up kind of, you know, no matter how good it is. And I got into this years ago, I would go, no matter how good it was, I could rubbish all of it and just go, yeah, but, you know, we might have only sold 10 million, but why have we sold 20 million? Yeah, I'm always doing that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that. that will motivate you. However, I'll stop looking at the downloads now just yeah. because I could never live up to my expectation of what they should be. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, what you have achieved is pretty brilliant, right? I mean, you know, you've got one of the most popular podcasts in the world. You know, when you consider uh, there are something like half a billion podcasts now, 
And, you know, most of them, many of them have like 10 listeners, you know, or, or viewers. You know, once you're into the tens of thousands or even the hundreds of thousands or millions, you know, millions you, you're in the top 1% of podcasts, you know, in the world. So why you, do I not? We looked at our stats across our show and we had 28 million downloads and views in June. Why aren't I able to pat myself on the back and do that? Also, mm-hmm. I never look at a successful person with envy. There might be the, uh, the bubble of jealousy from when I was a child, but actually I go, wow, I'm not sure I could ever be as great as you. I tend to heroize them. Okay, so hang on. So you got you 28 million, which is a great number, by the way, um, and yet you were still able to feel bad about it. What did you tell yourself <laughs> about that? <laughs> it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I guess I told myself that I should be doing more. Right. Um, our message is... Okay. Hang on. Yeah. Now, sorry, I'm, I'm going to yeah, leave that. Right, right, here you go. Now, if you didn't tell yourself that, what, what might happen? I might do less and therefore... There you go. So, yeah. so basically, you've got this fear of complacency, right? Right. And, you know, so, and it's not a bad thing. I, I, occasionally, I get it. Like the other day, I wasn't particularly busy. And I thought, oh, this, I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I really haven't done very much today. And I, I, I could then, I caught myself and went, ah, hang on. Um, I, I can see where this is going. And um, there's a part of me that, you know, good work ethic, get up, do things, you know, and, you know, ma- make a fantastic day. And I, I'm a big believer in purpose, right? Viktor Frankl, the legendary psychiatrist who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, said, purpose is the cornerstone of good mental health. Now, a lot of people confuse their job with their purpose. But for me, purpose can be to be a good husband, to be a good person. It could be to do something creative. It could be tend to your flowers. It could be, you know, walk the dog. It can be, you know, you have many purposes in a day. But yeah, you're, part of what's made you who you are, Rob, is my, this is my 20 cents, is this kind of like drive. And you, can, so you, you set the bar massively high, you shoot for the moon, you land in the trees, and you're going, I hardly got off the ground. Damn, you know. And, and if I don't keep going for the moon, I'm, I'm going to achieve nothing. I'd be useless and rubbish. And so this thing is it's going on inside. So the thing is, drives you, you get stuff done, 28 million, right? But the thing is, it, the downside is you won't get to enjoy it or you enjoy it just temporarily. You go like, 28, that's all right. Yeah, what are we on? On to next, next. And my life is very much like that for years. And I realized I had just accumulated more stuff, more status, more money, more power. But I wasn't really enjoying it. I wasn't properly happy because there's a difference between pleasure and happiness. Pleasure is a glass of champagne, a bubble bath or something like that. Happiness is the backdrop. It's the landscape. It's, um, happiness is um, where your sort of default is in life. And I noticed that I was on a quest to, it's more, 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 more. I was living in Los Angeles the sort of universal center of overachievers and selfishness and, and, and greed, you know, and, and, and also the cream of the entertainment world, the weather's beautiful. It's, you know, it's not a, like evil, it was fantastic. But I suddenly went, oh, hang on, I'm just, I'm not stopping to enjoy everything. And one of the things, you know, one of the, the simple things that made a big difference to me and still does is I do a gratitude list. I stop and I think, what am I grateful for? Big stuff like health, family, friends, you know, um, where I live in the world. Small stuff, first cup of tea of the morning. And I savour it, you know. And a friend of mine, he's a Zen master, Genpo Roshi. He came to stay with me in L.A. And uh, 
he's the creator of this amazing meditation called Big Mind. He's brilliant, but he ain't like the other Zen priests. I mean, he's kind of, he's a fairly maverick character. Anyway, so he was saying, in the morning, I'm cooking some breakfast. I said, so, what have you been doing this morning? I've been contemplating, meditating? He went, no. I said, um, what are your plans for today? He went, well, I don't have any. And, um, he, and we, we carried on like this, and eventually he went, Paul, I don't wish to achieve anything. I went, oh yeah, Zen, non-attachment. Because you're very much in the doing and having. He was in the being, as it were. And so um, things like that, moments like that, shifted me out of my endless quest for more. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite uh, stories in this area um, is, it's a great story. It's about Joseph Heller and Kurt Vonnegut, two authors, and they're at a party in the Hamptons, you know, and this guy's like a big, you know, trader or something. He's got millions of dollars of art on the walls, a big house. And, and I forget who said to, yeah, Vonnegut says to Heller, he goes, um, doesn't it kind of piss you off that this guy probably makes more in a week than you make in your life, you know? And he said, um, no. He says, oh, why's that? He goes, I've got something he'll never have. And he said, well, what's that? He goes, enough. <laughs> <laughs> so coming back to you <laughs> <laughs> thought we'd moved away from no that. No, yeah. no 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 see when a hypnotist starts telling you stories <laughs> yeah they're they're using them as hypnotic metaphors right? yeah so they're they're putting them into the unconscious mind i mean one of the things i would say to you is i mean if you just just say um as a thought experiment if you went out to the end of your life and you're living it the way you are right now you don't have to tell me, keep it private, but is there anything you wish you'd done more of or less of? Don't tell me, just, just take a moment. If you carry on the way you are right now, a lot of it would be good, I would say, but there might be, you might go, for me, when I did it, I went, oh God, wish I'd loved more, laughed more, not been so competitive with everyone. Don't wish I had another million quid or a bigger car or a bigger house. I just, wow. Um, that was just my insight. I don't know what yours were just then, <laughs> and then the other thing I do is I go out to the end I say go out to the end of your life right? but this time imagine it's been the most fantastic life it's been amazing what was it that made it that way now you know people tell me they go oh I really just I have these great friendships with everybody or I did everything I wanted to in my career some of it worked some of it didn't but I, I, I did what I wanted or it was time with the family or it was I got the balance right you know work play um etc and um you know that's what made it so wonderful so they get hindsight ahead of time mm. so um uh I don't know if you've had any insights pop up for you at all oh <laughs> the light's up. gone again <laughs> <laughs> one thing I will say and I feel very grateful for this. Doing this with you mm. and people like you is such a great experience. Yeah. Meeting amazing, interesting people. I think that's why I put my heroes way up there. I guess the, the higher up I put my heroes, the lower down that makes me. That's the problem. I'm interviewing my all-time favourite rock star. Most people don't know, don't care. Um, lead singer of the Porcupine Tree, Stephen Wilson, later. Mm. And he's so up there in my world. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's, you, you get to go, in, you know, in a sense, 
Um, I understand this, you know, this kind of, there's two things that you're describing. So there's the, yeah, it's great to, to have heroes, but, you know, they you say never place. meet them, don't they? Well, they <laughs> say that, although I've m- many of the ones I've met, it was great. Some mm. of them, it was a bit disappointing. But, but you know, you've still got a place at the table. Mm. And, the, and the other thing as well is what you're describing is imposter syndrome, right? And this is not uncommon where people go, you know, I remember having it early on in my career. I'd go like, I can't believe, uh, I mean, I, I mean, people think I'm, you know, I'm, this is, I'm good at this and maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I mean, but what if I'm not? And I get found out, and, you know, and then again, it's all of these mechanisms are there to sort of test the integrity of your thinking and behavior. And uh, that's a good thing. The problem is, if the testing goes on relentlessly, it'll, well, it will be uncomfortable and it'll fatigue you. So, mm. you know, it's that bandwidth thing again. I mean, I think there's also, I suspect, I don't know, Rob, but there's a part of you that probably thinks, um, and tell me if I'm wrong, if I'm just, I'm completely hallucinating here. Part of you thinks, you know, if I didn't keep a check on myself, I'd become an egomaniac and an asshole, and I don't want to be that guy. So I want to check that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, of course I'm not as good as them, and if I thought I was, I'd, I, you know, I'd, you know, it'd be foolish, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. And that stops you, in a sense, owning all your power. But at the same time, the, the, the aspect of you that goes, no, 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 I don't want to get ideas above my station. That's, you know, I, I get the positive intent of that. Sounds like it's been overdoing its job. It certainly motivated you. But mm. at what cost? I mean, you know, like if you had somebody living in your house that constantly went, oh, you think you're all that? You're not all that? Are you? I mean, you know, you're a wanker, aren't you? Right, you I have t- them all day on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but literally, you say, can you leave my house, please? You've got one in your head, yeah. right? And so all I'm saying is there's, um, there's a way. They're not mutually exclusive, right? So like anyone, I make a mistake from time to time. Alex could beat myself up about it, or I can just go, these days I go, wow, that was a mistake, right? That's a mistake, Uh, but I'm gonna learn from that. You know, I didn't get up in the morning thinking, how can I really fuck up this day? You know, I just, I went with good intentions, but I either, you know, wasn't thinking, you know, smart, or, you know, I just didn't see what the whole, read the whole situation, that's Mm. why the mistake occurred. You know, I don't think it's, I don't think people get up, people are generally well-intentioned apart from the sociopaths and psychopaths that we mentioned earlier. I think one of the things about personal development that took me by surprise, because I've studied it hard over 16 years, thousands of books, loads of courses, and overall the net benefit of my life has been very positive, put mm. myself out of way, out of debt, made a lot of money, I've done a lot of decent things in the world, given a lot back, generally overall much happier, but no one ever told me about this curse of personal development is, when you get so intense at improving yourself, mm. that becomes a curse in itself. Mm. Have you ever seen that? Yes. Um, the um, when I wrote the Rich book for a while, I mean, I just actually no, think of a better example. Um, yeah, um, it literally. You're right. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say the word curse. I would say that you can kind of. It's a, to do with perspective because if you make it all about you being the fastest reader or the, you know, the biggest thrill seeker, you know, the person with the least fear or, you know, you're like any sort of um, achiever, you've got to, you've got to obsess about it to some extent, right? And um, you need to be consumed by it. But um, in that, that way of being, con- in, in the, in the all-consumingness of it, 
you can you can lose your perspective can change and you can you can forget about the sort of important things in your life like for example i i was working with a guy once and i said you know he's what do you want to achieve he goes oh i want to make lots of money and a big house and a car and a boat and i said and where are you when you picture that he goes well, i never stopped to think about it so i said what are you going to do work yourself to death to get all this you know where's the family time where's the recovery where's the where's the you know the the um the counterbalance to it all because um uh, there are too many mi- miserable millionaires in the world. And, um, you know, there are some people I know who are not wealthy, but they are rich. They, they have a very good life. They love what they do. They, they live life on their own terms. That, that really, for me, is what being super rich is about. You're living life on your own terms in conjunction with your values, what's most important to you. Mm. Do you think this, it's never enough, I have to do more, I think we probably saw it in Steve Jobs. We definitely seem to see it in Elon Musk. Is that ultimately one of the biggest drivers for success, though? Well, uh, I, I would say uh, it's, it's in there. Um, but, but, you know, again, people's, uh, people either move towards or away from things, right? So they wake up in the morning, they go, oh, the alarm's gone. God, better get out of bed. Oh, I don't want to be late. don't want to be in trouble. So they're moving away from uh, discomfort. Other people wake up and go, opportunity. You know, I read this interview with Steven Spielberg uh, recently where he said, some mornings I'm so excited I can't eat my breakfast. Now, that's a move towards Guy, right? And so oh, we, we all do a bit of both, but we tend to predominantly do one, right? So um, I think that if you're constantly moving away from the fear of lack or of trouble or whatever, you don't get to enjoy it, right? So it's all about the bandwidth. How much of your day is spent feeling good. You know, if you had an actual monitoring system or if you just sat and you did it. Because you you, you can't escape the uncomfortable emotions. You know, fear, as I mentioned earlier, keeps us alive. Anger is usually when one of our standards has been violated. You know, don't talk to me like that. Mm-hmm. Guilt, mm, shouldn't have said that. The guilt gets you to go repair it. You just don't want to live in those, right? Mm. You want to, you know, you're going to have to experience them from time to time. Um, but you, you know, it's much nicer to live in, uh, enjoy creativity, love, um, motivation, optimism, confidence, um, those sorts of things, you know, mm. and, um, and, and so, um, in a sense, those are habits, right? You know, you, what, what you practice, you get good at. And I've noticed, you know, some people, they practice, uh, they might be getting these extraordinary results. The cost is that they burn themselves out or they, you know, they they uh, they don't really get to enjoy it because they're on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. And there's um, I I th- just my twenty cents on it because I I used to live um I was goal setter like I'm gonna achieve this I'm gonna achieve this and I got stuff done. But if I didn't achieve what I wanted what I wanted to, I could give myself a real hard time about it. So I now do this. I have a direction. Right when I look at the future, there are things there. Like I know that I'm going on vacation there. I know Christmas is there. I'm looking forward to seeing my mother there. I'm, you know, etc. But I'm going to write this bit down. Why well, you shouldn't set goals? You should have direction. Direction. Yeah. But uh, also, this is the key bit, Steve. Is sorry, this is the key bit, Rob? Is um, is is you need to come from your values, right? So values are those things that are most important to you. So, for example, top of everyone's list should be health, because if you don't have your health, you know, what's the point? So health, mental and physical has got to be at the top. But the other values, you know, I'm going to suggest you, you know, you come up with them. So I'll just tell you mine, right? So mine are 
um, health, it's family, it's freedom, freedom to do things I want. Um, it's laughter's in there, loyalty. If you're my friend, I am your friend, right? Loyalty is very important to me. Um, and, um, you know, and laughter, you know, I, a lot of laughter goes on every day, mostly at my expense, uh, courtesy of my wife. <laughs> and, um, and, but, but, um, and creativity. Now, if I can tick the box every day and go, do I feel loved today? I, I feel very loved. I love my family. Do I, was I creative? Because at the beginning of the lockdown, a bunch of my friends, you know, they, they got in touch and went, oh, we're feeling so rubbish about everything. And understandably, because it just felt like it wasn't fair. Like it was like, you know, business is suffering. Or I can't do the things I want to do. And I got it. And they could wind themselves up and get themselves feeling bad. And I, I just said um, simply, uh, so have you got your health, mental and physical? Yeah, I have, yeah. And have you got friends, family? Yes, but I can't see, oh, yeah, but you can connect with them over the internet. Okay. Um, have you got um, a roof over your head, food in the fridge, maybe a bottle of wine too? And uh, do you have, um, do you have, you know, clean air, clean water, things like this? And do you have a purpose? And if you can tick those boxes, you're in great shape. You know, I mean, uh, when you think about so many people in the world couldn't tick those boxes, if you can tick those, you are living rich. Your life is good. So um, again, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about perspective. So what I do is I get in touch with the values. And if I can tick those boxes every day, I'm winning. I'm ahead, right? And then on top of that, whilst I might have a specific goal, I, I want to achieve this number of people attend a seminar or want to, you know, to, um, to do this particular uh, business venture or something. But it doesn't happen. It's not the end of the world. But I've got just enough drive to make it. So you've got, you've got a goal that's big enough to get you out of bed, broken down into small enough chunks. But if all you've got in your life is goals, sure, you might get stuff done, but hey, you know, you won't stop to enjoy it. And so that's why you've got to put the values in there, box tick. And why I don't have, I have some fixed goals, but mostly my life is now about direction. So if I look off into the future, into the next 20, 30 years, I've got a sense of the things that I'm doing, but mostly it's living my values. So I can see myself healthy, happy with my, my family, doing things I love to do, etc. Rather than, I must achieve this by this, by this time. You know, in a sort of German way, you know, <laughs> the way I used to do it. <laughs> Did you say that the worst drug in the world is sugar? Mm. I said it's, it's probably the most dangerous right now. And the reason is because, um, firstly, sugar behaves more like a drug than a nutrient. The problem is it's, it's, it's not, in itself is not inherently bad, you know, any more than coffee is or something like that. But the problem is that we're all pretty much consuming too much of it. And that's because um, it's in 75% of things in the supermarket. And, you know, like any drug, the more you have, the more you need. And so we're consuming it in, because, you know, sugar, <coughs> sugar tastes nice, right? You know, um, but we're consuming it in indirectly in all these different things. And um, as a result of the five things that are most likely to prematurely kill you, according to the NHS, sugar is directly linked to four of them. So, um, yeah, we've got epidemic obesity. We've got heart disease, liver disease, um, uh, you've got um, uh, cancer, love, sugar. So um, 
I'm not saying don't consume it, but you're supposed to consume no more than 30 grams a day. One can of soda has got 35 grams in it. Yeah. So uh, that's my concern is that there's this. And also, do you know the other thing? The, the sugar industry has gone out of its way to fund phony research and, um, and do all sorts of really malevolent stuff. And um, the tobacco industry, we, we kind of all think about it yeah, in that way. Sugar industry is as bad, if not worse. And so um, and they've suppressed the work or tried to, the scientists have tried to expose this. So, I mean, I know when I wrote a book about it, so I got so much grief about it. Crikey, these guys are really, they're going to have a go at me now because I've dared to suggest that what they're doing, they know is wrong. Who are these guys? Sugar industry. Right. The big manufacturers of it. Well, it's the, see, it's not just, it's not like one company, right? What you have is, you know, you've, you've got a system, right? But the chap who, who, who tried to expose this, John Rudkin, got kind of ruined by them. And he was a, he was a great man. My mother knew him. And he wrote Pure, White and Deadly and exposed it a long time ago. And we've been playing catch-up ever since. They've been trying to, you know, to muddy the waters. So you haven't just got, what, people who make sugar. You've got retailers who sell it, you know. So when you go into a supermarket, what's sugar doing in smoked salmon? It makes it taste maybe a little nicer. It, you know, sure, you've got sugar in a cigarette as well. So it's addictive. So it's wow. not like there's one people we can, group of people we can point at. It's, 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 um, it's everywhere. How do we access the success mindset? We were talking before we went live, you've got um, a seven-day program coming, which I'm going to try and make the dates for. Correct. I've really enjoyed this, and I do like working on my mindset. So how do we access the success mindset? Okay, so um, this training is called Change Your Life in Seven Days. And um, I, I wanted to, to do something like this for a while. And these days, much like yourself, Rob, I only do things I like and work with people I like. I'm pretty fortunate. And so uh, myself and two other really high-end Rolls-Royce coach trainers, um, Steve Crabb and Alexandra uh, Mora, uh, together, over seven days, we're going to show you how to take control of your thinking and your feelings so you become master of your emotions and thinking. We're going to show you how to begin to design a more compelling future. We'll be using hypnosis, havening, this technique, and NLP. So if you're a coach or a therapist and you want to learn how these techniques work and you want to, you know, be in, because this is a small number of people, 75 people, right? And uh, it's, um, uh, it's also about how you uh, develop the wealth mindset, how you develop a happy mindset. Uh, it's how you um, overcome things that are holding you back, self-sabotage, fear of failure, all these sorts of things. Um, and become, I suppose, really release more of your true potential. So, you know, for me, it's not just enough that I help people overcome some sort of remedial problem. I like to do interior decorating in people's minds. You know, I like them to, <laughs> to be able to suddenly see a richer world, change their perceptual filters so they see opportunity everywhere, right? They see, um, they see a happy, happy world, you know, rather than being constantly under attack, yeah? yeah. Uh, so um, uh, if you spend seven days with three hypnotists, you're going to be different, right? But the idea is, you know, if you teach someone to fish, they eat for a day. Sorry, if you give someone a fish, they eat for a day. Teach someone to fish, they eat for life. So it's not just that you come along and you get transformed. It's that you learn the, the techniques, the technologies 
to be able to do that to yourself so that you, you're kind of a never-ending, ongoing um, um, a work in progress of, of, of um, betterment. But um, also you'd be able to do it with other people. So if you were a coach or therapist, you'd be able to, um, your game will be raised massively because you'll have a whole set of new tools in your toolbox and you'll have seen them demonstrated um, uh, in a way they should be doing, they should be done. And also you get a chance to try them over and over again. It's so the difference between a training and a, and a book. You know, you just book, you sit and read it, you know, passively. Training, you're in the experience, it's contained. And, um, you know, our intent is to, for everybody to transform dramatically but in a way that's right for them, because you're the expert on you. You know, I don't want to go and install my model of happiness in you. What I'd rather do is help you to discover what your model of happiness is and enhance it. So it's like, um, it's, uh, it's like having the ability to overwrite the operating software in your mind and make it the best it could possibly be. And so, uh, yeah, we're doing that at the beginning of September, um, pretty soon. Where can we go if we want to check it out? Is there a so, website? Uh, yes. If you just put um, Change Life Seven Days, Paul McKenna, into it's, it's at Mind, Body, Spirit. They, 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 they're promoting it. Mind, Body, Spirit. But it'll t take you to an Eventbrite page if you want to, uh, if you want to, to book on it. If not, if you want to talk to somebody and they explain it all through in much more detail than I just, just did. Uh, yeah, if you go to Mind, Body, Spirit, you'll find that it's there. Great. Well, I hope I can make the dates. Yeah, it'd be seven, great to see you. Seven days in four weeks' notice. Yeah. Blimey. <laughs> Let's do this. Should we do a quick fire round? These tend to be quite fun. Okay. Um, so maybe 15 seconds answer on each. If you want to go a bit longer, that's fine. Okay. Um, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen in hypnosis? God, there's so many. I mean, do you know, I mean, I remember years ago um, hypnotizing this guy, putting an earpiece in. in, in I, I, I was, it was at MTV in Times Square in New York. And we sent this guy off into Times Square and I was having him to sleep and he'd be like this in the square and woke him up and said, when you wake up, you'll be convinced someone's stolen your eyebrows, right? And we woke him up and he said, hey man, give me my eyebrows! Like this, running, <laughs> chasing people around Times Square. I mean, you know, I, that's just one off the top of my head. If you could have a million pound cash right now mm -hmm. or a million followers on social media, which would you take and why? I'd take a million uh, more followers, I think, because when you have people that um, uh, um, have bought into your brand, you know, and they, they, you know, they're interested in what you do. Because I essentially use social media like, um, like a notice board. I mean, I put some things in my life and some, you know, bits of inspirational stuff up. But really, it's to let people know what I'm doing. So whether it's a new book, whether it's my podcast, or whether it's a you know, training event, I want people to know about it. And so, you know, you would turn that million pound, that, those million followers into many millions of pounds. You have a podcast called The Positivity Podcast, I believe. Yes, yeah. Who is the most positive person in, I think, 100 and what, nearly 20 interviews you've done? Well, do you know, they're, they're, it's, it's literally, it's hard to compare them because they, everybody's interesting and brings something to the party. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're really extraordinary um, people. I mean, the, the chap I just interviewed, the, the um, accomplished uh, astronaut, Chris Hadfield, was amazing. At the end of that, 
I was like, I felt like a slacker, the amount of stuff this guy's done, you know. Um, but, you know, it's a very eclectic mix. It's Simon Cowell, it's Mel B, it's John Cleese, it's Richard E. Grant, it's Joe Malone, it's, you know, it's Heston Bloomington, it's a fantastic one. Um, yeah, it's Gary Lineker. It's, it's, it's people from, from the arts, from business, from sports. It's writers as well, like, like um, Andy McNabb, you know, all, they're super interesting people. And, you know, there are some themes there, you know, having good parents, overcoming adversity. Um, Walking the dog is another one that comes up. Uh, and, you know, it's to some extent, um, it's, it's a very deep thing, but it's, it's all popular sort of household names. How do you sell anything to anyone? Well, first of all, you need to find out what it is they want, right? And if you haven't got it, don't sell them because you'll get buyer's remorse. In fact, direct them where they can find it and they'll be, uh, they'll be a good advert for you. What I do is um, I actually find out what somebody wants. I, I'm, I'm very, I get very clear about the unique selling points because you're always selling the benefits, right? So, you know, if you're selling a car, um, you're selling that, you know, if somebody wants one that's safe, sell them a Volvo. If they want something as fast, sell them a Ferrari, right? And so I, I, I find what it is they want. I, I, I talk about the benefits and I inoculate against the objections. So if it's price or, you know, if it's like years ago, I was um, doing a training, teaching people persuasion influence. And this guy, he sold um, air conditioning units. This was in Italy. And um, his air conditioning unit was twice as much as others, but it lasted five times longer. It had something like 10 times fewer problems, etc. And so, you know, the way to do that is you go, look, some air conditioning units are much cheaper, but then, you know, they break down um, um, 10 times more often and, you know, they won't last as long. And when you're sitting there on a hot, sunny day and sweltering because the AC's broken down, you might be thinking, maybe I should have spent a few bucks more. So you frame it like that. So what you have to do is to tell the truth, but you're presenting your best case. Who controls the world? Well, I don't think any one person or any group of people do like you would hear from a conspiracy theorist. I think things like um, the markets control the world. I mean, right now, you know, the the, the climate has a big say in the world. So, you know, I'm, uh, I like to think that um, the world is, um, planet Earth, the world for me is, is this, the, the Earth is the planet. And um, I like the Gaia theory, which is the Earth is like a living organism. The days and nights are the heartbeat, the rainforest is the lungs, the oceans are the blood supply. And there's about the same number of communication connections on the Earth right now as there are neural networks in a brain. So we're the global brain. And um, my friend Peter Russell, he, he um, is a writer, he did this, this talk where he, he shows you the um, shot of a cancer cell under a microscope and an aerial shot of Los Angeles, and he shows you the structure is similar. And his point being that selfishness, which is what cancer is about, is he's killing the world. And uh, I think that's right. Selfishness and greed are two of the big problems. So in a sense, selfishness and greed has a say in controlling the world. Fear has a uh, you know, say in controlling the world. Um, and bringing it back to what you do, Rob, I love that thing that Ry Kuda, the musician, said, which was, all the money in the world is spent on feeling good. And um, so um, there, are, there are lots of things that control the world. And you know, they make it this exciting and rich and extraordinary uh, place. Can I just pick up on something you said? Did you say... Cancer is selfishness, is that? In a sense, it's a selfish, um, yeah, these are selfish cells, yeah, um, that's right. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're uh, selfishly multiplying at the, the cost of the health of the host. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken? 
I um, left my job, my house, my country, <laughs> family, went off to live in Los Angeles and uh, I took a massive punt and it worked out. Risk is the currency of the gods. And so, I mean, I had a panic attack about two days later. I thought, what the hell have I done? But it all worked out. I managed to land a um, um, television show, publishing deal. Um, I you know, created enough wealth to you know, fund my lifestyle and enjoy things there. So I had about 10 years in Hollywood. It was fantastic. But that was a punt doing that. What's the biggest success you've ever had? Well, you know, it's, it, it, everyone thinks of success in different ways. You know, when I ask people this in my podcast, people say my family. Other people go, oh, something I achieved in my career. Um, you know, I mean, for me, uh, you can't, it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges. So when I help somebody overcome a problem that they've had for years, they've tried everything, nothing's worked, boom, and it's black, that's like, that feels massive. But then also when, you know, if you're in show business, you've got to keep having hits. Um, and uh, Simon Cowell's, you know, motto. And, um, you know, so having a hit book or a hit podcast or something like that feels good. I mean, it feels really good. So um, those for me are like big successes. What would you say is your biggest failure? Biggest failure? Um, Well, you know, I could, if I wanted, look at things in terms of failure. Um, I've just been various business projects that haven't worked out. You know, there's... In modern self-improvement, there's this saying, there's no such thing as failure, there's only feedback. And that is a helpful way to reframe um, uh, things so that you don't beat yourself up. Oh, I'm such a loser. You know, you just go, okay, I didn't get it right that time, I'm going to go again. And, you know, if you look at super successful people through history, James Dyson, 5,000 attempts at the vacuum cleaner, Edison, 3,000 attempts at the light bulb. You've got to have a mindset like that to keep going. So... Yeah, I can look back and go, I tried this venture, it didn't work out, um, disappointing, but, you know, it, it, was, it was one of many. And without all these things not having worked out, you wouldn't find out what would work. So they're part of, the, they're part of what makes it all work, ultimately. What's the best advice you ever remember receiving? Oh, so many. I mean, I, I ask people this in my podcast and I get all kinds of really great answers back. I mean, my piece of advice, when people go, what's the one piece of advice? I go, you get more of what you focus on. And the reason I say that is because a lot of people think about what it is they don't want all day long. I don't want to be outright. I don't want to be nervous, etc. And of course, they're focusing on that. And, um, you know, if, um, if I say to you, don't think of elephants, you have to think of it to not think of it. So you don't process the negation. So, we do need to think about what it is we don't want, but if that's all we ever think about, that's what we tend to get. So, uh, yeah, think about what you don't want to have happen so you can prepare for it, and then think about what you do want over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> I want to sit in that for a bit, but the, the next question will kill it, but I'm just going to ask, yeah. ask anyway. What's the worst advice you ever remember receiving? Oh, I mean, you know, one of my school reports said... Um, uh, I would never amount to anything. <laughs> this is my revenge. 
<laughs> Do you want to name a teacher? Should call him. I actually no. I found it the other day. It was in like so. You know, I like it was. I went to Catholic school. You know, it was not for you know for all of my schooling. Thank God. But it um, no, it was you know. But basically, you've got a bunch of losers, people who you know can't make it work in the real world, so they could boss little kids around, and and then these freaky guys in black dresses, you know, who I very much doubt. Are God's representatives on earth, but um, uh, yeah, it was it was kind of you know the whole indoctrination is one of guilt and you are less than to sort of control you, you know. Mm. But uh, it didn't work on me. Do we have true freedom of speech? In an absolute sense, no. Um, and you can't have you know uh, be able to speak about anything in any context anywhere. In the same way, you can't. Um, so in America, they have this whole thing about freedom of speech, the Constitution. But you can't shout fire in a, in a crowded theatre if there isn't one, because, you know, the, the greater good is, is endangered. So um, uh, there is an absolute freedom of speech. But uh, here in the Western world, we enjoy it much more than they do in other parts of the world. I mean, I think it's like half the world is democratic and the other half isn't. I know which bit I want to live in. Mm. Is there one thing in the world, Paul, you'd like to change? There's more than one. Um, it'd be nice if we could reduce all the fear-based aggression in the world, which is polluting the planet at the moment. And, um, and, and, and if there was um, more, I mean, I'm going to sound like a hippie now, but if people were in a, if I could teach people one thing, it would just be to relax, right? To free themselves from the anxiety and the stress of life and to get in touch with the joy and the, the beauty of it all. And so if we reduce the fear-based aggression, which is literally polluting everything at the moment, and got people into more love and peace, it would be a better world. So that's the change I would like to see. I mean, you know, you could, there's endless other things, you know, like we've got too many weapons. We don't need any more. If I was king of the world, I'd say, right, that's enough. Sorry, because you take amount of nuclear weapons times the amount they're out there equals more chance for, for trouble. But also there's more guns in America now than there is people, you know, and uh, yeah. So the thing is, I think there's enough weapons in the world, but, and who is it somebody said, brilliant, he said, you know, the strange thing is, is if you looked at Earth from outer space, you go, they've got all these weapons down there and they're not pointed out at potential enemies. They're all pointed at each other. And so little things like that, you know, I mean, I think um, one of the, my favorite phrases is, um, from the Dalai Lama, he says, kindness is my religion. And that's mine too. Uh, uh, I think, um, you know, if we, could, if we could all just be a bit kinder and, it, you know, I, I find when I'm kind, it feels good. I don't feel like being kind to everyone, right? You know, sometimes people annoy me, you know, and, and uh, but um, generally, if I can do something that makes somebody else feel good, it's, a, it's an old Chinese saying, which is, um, if you want to be happy for an hour, take a nap. If you want to be happy for a week, take a holiday. If you want to be happy for a year, win the lottery. If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, help other people. And so for a functional person, helping other people will feel good. Do you have a 15 second or less tip for better mental strength? Do a gratitude list. Yeah. So think about um, all the things you're grateful for, you know, where you live in the world, your health, your family, your friends, things that you look forward to, like a cup of tea in the morning or, a, you know, something you like to, some TV show you want to watch. And then things things to look forward to. We all need that. Yeah. So, you know, and it could be stuff like, oh, I'm looking forward to a vacation. I'm looking forward to, to um, uh, seeing my friend Frank or something. It could just be any number of things. 
things to look forward to. So there we go. That's the 15 second. So this show is called Disruptors. What does the word disruptive mean to you? Well, uh, I, I, I know it for many people it might be pejorative, but these days it means game changers. It means people who upset the status quo and change the game. You know, in a sense, chaos is beautiful. Um, and uh, so I think disruptors, you know, all the great achievers through history are disruptors. Um, George Bernard Shaw said, um, me reasonable men adapt themselves to the world. Unreasonable men adapt the world to them. That's why all progress depends on unreasonable men. What a great way to finish. Thanks so much, Paul. For Thank you, Rob. Great, really great. Thank you. So what did you think? Let me know in the comments. I'm telling you from an interviewer's point of view, Paul McKenna maybe had the best energy in 1,000 episodes. But what are your thoughts? Let me know in the comments right now. And remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything.